turning to today's event, um, Roger Taylor, former chair of Ofqual, speaks for the first time on his reflections of the events of 2020 and the cancellation of exams and the reliance on an algorithm to allocate grades to individual students. Roger um, has worked in regulation in health, education, criminal justice, and co-founded Dr. Foster, which pioneered the role of public data in monitoring health and healthcare quality. He's an expert in data ethics and transparency and has written extensively on that, including with me in various other um, organizational guises over the um, last few years. So I'm delighted to welcome Roger to speak um, uh, this afternoon with you. And we'll hear later from Anne Longfield and Neil Carberry as they set up their responses. So at this stage, I turn to Roger Taylor. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Um, sorry, I had to remember to unmute there. And uh, it's a delight to be, uh, be on this panel and, and um, uh, to be here with Anne and Neil, and also great to be working working with you again, I have to say. Um, uh, and uh, delighted to be given this opportunity to, to share some reflections on uh, exactly what's happened uh, in 2020, because I think um, there's a risk that we don't take the right lessons from what happened. And uh, if we if we make that mistake, we will continue to repeat repeat the same errors. So I'm gonna say a little bit about what went wrong. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about what I think government and those of us who work in public administration should take from this experience and what how we should think about how we can do things differently. And then lastly, I wanna just talk a little bit about uh, the the what, what is happening generally with the use of algorithms in uh, in, in assessing candidates, in uh, selecting people, whether for university or for employment, and to talk a little bit about what the lessons are that we can take from this episode and think about how those systems uh, can be developed to work as effectively as possible to support social mobility, fair recruitment, uh, and indeed the, the, the broader levelling up agenda. Um, uh, Neil, I should say, I just heard you talking on the on the COGX panel. I thought you were making some uh, very strong points there on those on those important issues. So, starting with what went wrong, um, the 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 first thing to say is it, it's always tempting in these situations to blame the algorithm and say the algorithm went wrong, or to blame the statisticians, um, and that is the wrong response. I mean, to be clear, sometimes it is the algorithm that goes wrong. But in this instance, it, it, it wasn't the algorithm, it was the policy choices that were made. And it was, in effect, a gross miscalculation about what was a reasonable and acceptable way to treat people. And we need to understand how we came to make that miscalculation. So just to explain this simply, what happened was we cancelled exams. And exams are the legitimate and accepted way of deciding how we assign grades to candidates and then use that information to decide important consequential decisions about their lives. Most importantly, who gets to go to university. And going to a university, particularly getting a, a good place at, a, at, a, at a, an elite university is, one, is a life-changing opportunity. And to be in any way cavalier or thoughtless about how that process works is a, a recipe for disaster. What we did is we cancelled that exams, that legitimate way of doing it, and we decided we were going to replace it with a, a mechanism 
that would predict who we thought was most likely to have done well in the exam. But of course, we knew that it, it wouldn't be wholly accurate. And we knew that in many cases, people would be given the wrong grade, that they would have done better in exam and that they would know that, but they would strongly feel it, and they would feel a deep sense of injustice. The extraordinary thing about this is how wide and deep the consensus was. This isn't a, a political issue. We don't labor in, in, in Scotland, sorry, nationalists in, in Scotland, the labor in Wales, Tories in, in England, all that. Well, everybody made the same choice and decided that this was the right thing to do. Uh, there was very widespread, widespread support across education, across higher education, and across uh, stakeholders that this was the right thing to do. So it does require us to think quite carefully about how we could have collectively made such a colossal misjudgment. Uh, another reflection on that is also is that it wasn't that people were blind to it. I mean, there was a deep sense of unease as this process was going forward and, and, a, and a realization that people, it, you know, that this was an enormous thing to ask of people that they simply accept that this is how it has to be because there is a pandemic on. But somehow that did not sufficiently crystallize in the policy making and the decision making to recognize that it, this just wasn't going to wash with people. And so when, when that sort of misjudgment happens, I think we need to sort of think about how did we how do we make that mistake? And I think it is indicative of a broader frame of mind. Uh, it reflects the way particularly that uh, administrative and bureaucratic processes think about information systems and about data. And it is a frame of mind that is weak at recognizing the experience of the individual and thinking it about, about it from the citizen's perspective and which greatly overvalues benefits in terms of the smooth running of the administration, keeping things on track, enabling the, the systems to work as, as closely as they can to how they normally work. This is not a malicious frame of mind. It is done entirely with, with a view to making things work as effectively as possible, but it is a frame of mind that does result in really bad choices and can corrode public trust. So what, what are the lessons for, 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 for government and public administration? So the, the first thing I do think is, is that we need to think quite carefully about the mental models we bring to these decision makings. There's a lot of commentary that sort of better communication and better engagement and better research would have steered people in the, you know, steered us in, 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 in a better direction. I think that's true. I think that is right, but I think we can overestimate how much research and engagement can do if you're coming at a problem with a particular mindset. So I think we also think, need to think about how do we build into our thinking uh, in a more structured way ideas around what does it feel like to be on the other end of this decision-making system? And just to, just to emphasize that point, we did, you know, with Ofqual, we went and did research with students. I mean, parents, it has to be said, parents were much more skeptical, but students, you know, you laid out the options, you explained the rationale, and they kind of went, well, I suppose that is the right thing to do. But of course, that gave us no indication of what it actually felt like to wake up in the morning and be handed a grade that you just knew wasn't what you would have gotten to have a, a huge opportunity taken away from you. So, so I think we need to think about how we, how we, how we look at our own decision-making processes and, and, and get better at thinking about that on behalf of people, as well as thinking about how we can better engage, engage them in those decisions. And a big part of that is the idea of legitimacy. Um, we are relatively good at thinking about things such as, uh, you know, um, properties such as bias and, and, and fairness and, and, and accuracy and thinking about sort of the, 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 um, 
the properties of the system as a whole. Uh, but those ideas completely fail to capture the, the degree to which people simply regard something as fair, that they understand how they interact with it, they know how their own actions affect the outcome. Uh, and that aspect of it was not, does not get the same level of, of attention. Indeed, it's it, it sort of, there's a curiosity about what happened in 2020 in that people got the grades and they knew they'd been treated unfairly and they weren't happy about it. And, and most people led to the conclusion, it must be because the system's biased. And what's odd about that is that the bias was one of the things that everybody was very focused on, had spent a lot of time thinking about how do we make sure it isn't biased. But, but it's almost that we all spent so much time worrying about whether it was biased or not, that we lost sight of the much bigger issue, which is, is this fair at all? And as a result, ended up finding a way of imposing unfairness in a very even-handed way across the whole population. Uh, I think the other thing that government can learn from this is, is we need to think very carefully about what, how we think about data and statistics and information systems. And we need to get better about recognizing that these are not tools for government to enable it to carry on administering things uh, in, in ways that are as convenient and effective and efficient as possible. They exist for the benefit of society and for individuals. And, and we need to think really carefully about, I think there's a lot of implications about how you then organize these systems particularly in terms of individual rights to have their own information and to be able to use it, and the degree to which the, the knowledge about what is happening to people and to different groups in society, the degree to which that is available, not just to those who, who run the system, but to civil society and others um, across who, who may have uh, bring different perspectives to how it's interpreted. And so lastly, I just wanted to say a little bit about what can we learn from this about thinking about the future of education and recruitment. And I think this is an enormously important question um, because digital and data-driven systems are becoming rapidly a, a, an important feature of how decisions are made about young people and indeed about people throughout their careers, their working lives. Um, and on the one hand, it is fantastic what employers and university admissions officers are doing to recognize that a grade does not sum up an individual, but that grades need to be an understood in context. And um, in the paper uh, published, I sort of cite a couple of examples, a, a system called rare recruitment that enables an employer to take a view as to whether a candidate with a B from a, from a, from a disadvantaged background at a poorly performing school may in fact represent a much better higher or a much better admission to university than say somebody with an A from the top performing school in the country. So that's really welcome. And what's also welcome, I think, is the, is the growing use in recruitment of additional mechanisms to assess different aspects of the individual. And those have been used successfully to diversify re recruitment and to try and better identify abilities. But there is a real risk here because qualifications have an, have an important aspect to them. They are publicly understood. Uh, they frame uh, success and recruitment, not about some inherent quality to you, but about a skill or, or an ability that you can be taught and that you can learn. And that's enormously important, these systems, if they are to be ones that are human friendly, that support human flourishing in the words of the Royal Society, that they are not about trying to categorize people and label people, but they create the right sort of incentives that make it clear to people, this is how I can move forward in life. This is what I would need to do to be to, to be able to qualify for that kind of job. 
I understand why I was refused that post. I know what I might need to do if I wanted to continue down that road. And so it's really important that both that qualifications are understood in context and that people are able to interpret what the qualification says about the individual. But it's equally important that qualifications do remain a central part of how decisions about young people are made. And I think that we have a lot of work to do to think through exactly how we make that, that work in a way that is as, 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 as human-centric and creates the right kind of uh, uh, environment for young people um, uh, growing up and, and provides uh, a, a, an effective way of uh, opening up opportunities to all. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. I mean, I think some really key and clear points there, particularly around the, the weakness of, of the system in responding to, to, to the needs of the individuals and, and the degree to which, as you say, it overweights the smooth running of administration rather than thinking about um, young people. And so that's a neat segue into Anne Longfield, our former um, Children's Commissioner, who's gonna talk about her uh, reflections from the perspective of children and young people. Great, thank you, uh, Charlotte, and thank you, Roger. That got us off with some brilliant prompts uh, for me. Some that set me off a little bit more than others, but um, you, you, you might be able to guess what they are. Um, I think the question is: Does the algorithm work for us? I think the answer is depends who who us is. Who are we in them? What we saw last year, and it wasn't just about this. It was about how systems get exposed during a crisis. Really, um, with the pandemic, was that we saw a glaring exposure of where some kids fit, uh, fall through the gaps. Um, and uh, you know, with um, the sites now on how you do build back better, how you do learn from the experience of uh, the last fifteen months then there are some clear experiences here, as we all know, uh, that can really help us take um, these things and improve them uh, in the future. And I think the starting point, where does fairness and social mobility set, you know, live in all this? Where is it set in all this? Um, well, I think, you know, there are judgment calls here. And Roger, you refer to it as policy, policy decisions to be had. There are judgment calls about where what what ranking you give fairness and social mobility you know i would put them very high but there are there are there are calls to be had here and as all these things there are pecking orders about what you choose and i would say that uh, fairness and social mobility didn't have enough weight behind it in terms of um, the ranking of uh, decision making within that. What tolerance did we have for a failure in terms of um, uh, fairness and uh, social mobility? And uh, I think our tolerance level generally is too high, but certainly um, that was seen in terms of decisions made. And I think the starting point is, as Roger said there, um, and really well explained, um, you know, what this feels like from a system point of view and the process point of view. And there is always, it's again, it wasn't just here, but, you know, this is always feeling that actually if we can make the system work as well as possible, then we're doing something for the greater good. And, you know, um, I, you know, my message is having worked in this, uh, in, in, in work around children and families for 30 years, but as Children's Commissioner, where I could get to really scrutinize some of the systems in more detail, actually, they, they don't often understand the lived experience 
of children's lives or young people's lives or families' lives and don't um, understand that actually they're a second order issue. Actually, the end product, children's um, outcomes has to be the focus. And that drives us to interrogate and test whatever system it is. And I, I get it. Roger said that, um, you know, um, it, it, you know, it's not it's not malicious in there, but I do think that processes and system um, uh, concerns above all else um, are careless and uh, can be negligent. So I would want this to be a wake up call for not only this system, but wider systems to really focus on individuals within it and what that means for their outcomes in life. Now, I think that means understanding the um, uh, lived experience of inequalities and what you doing do about it. In this ex um, particular example, understanding what inequalities mean if you don't have the kind of home environment, if you don't have the access to learning, if you don't have, if you have huge challenges in being able to deliver that work, it means understanding what it meant not to get access because of uh, uh, not having the digital tools and also not to have access because you were in areas of increased um, uh, infection. So you couldn't take part in learning in the same way. And of course, most of those or a lot of those areas were in the north and there were very strong um, uh, uh, positions being put forward, uh, not least by the Northern Powerhouse um, Partnership. Um, I think I was really struck as part of that whole process as well as how the disjointed the thinking was in, uh, again, it's not something that's just about this, but of course, discussions and policies take place in compartments. So if you actually are going to help um, children who are disadvantaged succeed, it's not only um, how you measure their success, it's also what you put in in terms of support. And there are clearly fantastic examples of where organisations um, uh, can really boost children's life chances by offering that support. And many schools do that. But that has to be part of a whole exercise. It can't be just compartmentalized off into different aspects of um, the education system. So I think that the, the lack of understanding of the lived experience really drives that ability to be able to make fairness a real test. And I don't think that we could see um, uh, anyone really who was sitting there really interrogating that fairness of the me, if it can pass the test in terms of being fair for disadvantaged young people, then it's probably going to work for others too. And certainly that regional element, very much um, a focus in there too. Just a few other thoughts to bounce in at this stage. The measure of success. Well, I'm sure we're going to hear from Neil about some of the changing elements of, of, of skills needed. Um, but I do think this is um, not only an opportunity, but also um, a real need at this point to look at what are the skills that employers will need um, for the future. And they do go beyond a narrow academic um, set of skills. Of course, we all know critical thinking, ability to nurture, flexibility, problem solve, all of those things, which is why firms such as EY are going out. And that's something I think that we need to look seriously at what that means for um, the education system in preparing children for the world of work. And what I can see is that those children who are going to private schools or to schools who are very geared up about this 
um, are putting children at an even greater advantage than those that are in schools, which may be um, much more about trying to get to first base and kids that really do have their um, enormous challenges in themselves. And to look at the system itself, uh, again, another question. Um, we talked about, um, you know, grade inflation. We talked about um, individual children's grades within that. But we still have a system where we think it's tolerable to have 25% of children who um, fail. And I think, again, it's a time to look at what we want from and expect from our system and whether there's a different way of measuring progress, which means that as children come out of 14 years in school with tens of thousands of pounds being spent, that actually um, they can have something to show for that. Um, so I think here we have an opportunity to learn from this. It was an enormous shock. We had a system where um, really we saw processes and uh, technology taking over from individuals within there. And looking at what that means for young people, and I was interested, Roger, when you said um, you talked to young people about it and they thought, oh, well, this sounds okay. Young people aren't against using technology at all. But when they can see that it doesn't have anything that counters it working against them, then they lose all trust in it, just as um, you could see there and with adults too. So if we are going to build machinery, in which it's almost inevitable as we move forward, and we should, we have to make sure it works for the individuals and it has that ability to be able to um, really ensure that children um, and whoever it is that's in that system um, doesn't get lost. And of course, that is knowing which principles, knowing which policy decisions are putting in in the first place. And again, testing, testing, testing uh, that system every set of the way. It shouldn't be a surprise what happens on a day like an exam day. We all should have thought of that beforehand. So what about the future? Well, this is about building back better. Um, what are we trying to achieve? Um, and if leveling up is anything, it must be about education and it must be about social mobility and it must be about fairness. Um, how much um, do we understand young people's experience and lived experience of um, being disadvantaged in this situation and in their educational journey, um, the reality and what are we prepared to put in to help them get there? I would say we need to be prepared to put in a lot. Um, what do we measure? How do we measure it, including how do we um, really support those areas where we've had entrenched disadvantaged inequalities over many generations, and again, um, plug in the North there, and how do we support children to get to that point as well? Um, progression is complicated, but it can be done. And this is the challenge I think we now need to set ourselves. Fantastic, thank you so much, Anne. Um, I think you have also provided Neil with some, some further points if, if, if um, Roger's um, essay and his remarks weren't enough, I mean, the, the idea that skills go beyond academic success is something that the Centre for Progressive Policy, we are um, very keen to stress and have done a lot of work on the role of um, further education and its connection with labour market outcomes. Um, I think just broadening your, your point there about the, the percentage of children who are deemed to fail, I think the extent to which, um, as, as Roger suggested, you know, a, a, a high quality university is a kind of golden ticket. Well, there's the question I don't think we've readily addressed yet, and that's what happens 
to the 50% of young people who don't go to university. And we're seeing the further education bill go through now. And, and as you say, if that doesn't link back to our education system, and if that doesn't link to some of the points we're raising today, both on the employment side, the assessment side, and the role of education, I think we are going to, to struggle to meet that, um, the ambitions that, that, that we have, not just in government, but across society for levelling up. So at this stage, I'm going to move across to Neil now and think about um, what all this means for employability and um, how we can continue to have the debate so that we have a trust in our qualification systems with employers as much as young people. Thanks, Charlotte, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Real pleasure to join you. Thank you, Roger, for the essay, which I think is a really useful bit of insight. And if you were listening to me on COGX earlier, Roger, you know I like a, a historical analogy to start things off. And one of the questions I often ask people to reflect on when thinking about how the British government makes its decisions is the question, what made the poll tax politically unsustainable? Because in the in the national consciences, people will go straight to the poll tax riots. And actually, I would go straight to the Eastbourne by-election and the Mid-Staffs by-election. Things become politically unsustainable when our people, people in our circle, are saying this is an absolute choose-your-word show. Um, and I, I, I start with that by, uh, by way of saying, I think the algorithm experience of exams last year is Roger, as you set out in your uh, essay, a symptom of a wider challenge within government, and Anne has put her finger on it as well, which is um, limited ability to think about the lived experiences of individuals and to think about the system as a whole. And I can draw examples right now from what's going on within the same department uh, we, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, Charlotte, about the 50% of young people who go to an underfunded FE system. Um, I um, am the, uh, the tired veteran of explaining in one's word syllable to government that the problem isn't an apprenticeship levy. It's the fact that it's cutting employer investment in training because of the way it's designed. But it solves the government's problem, doesn't it? Puts three hundred million pounds of free cash into the uh, into the treasury to spend on other stuff. So we continue to do it, and apprenticeship numbers continue to fall. Um, that doesn't feel like something that's focused on the users of the system to me. So the the exams example is a classic. Is sort of the Eastbourne or Midstaff's by election of uh, of this issue, and I was really pleased, uh, Roger, that you put your finger on it, and. The core issue is really to ask the following question, who's it for, really? And you know, one of the reasons you know, I've been in touch with this issue over the years is not just that I work for the Recruitment Trade Association now and I've done various bits, including the Law Pay Commission. I ran the CBI's education programme for 10 years. And, and the thing that runs through a lot, ran through a lot of our team's thinking then is basically government views GCSEs as a school accountability measure. And if you view GCSEs as that and not as a way to accredit uh, a critical point of uh, educational transition for individual students existing in their own milieu, you are going to uh, fall prey to the kind of groupthink errors that we saw happen last year. Now, from a business perspective, it's important I approach this with some 
some element of humility because we are not doing everything right in this world ourselves. In fact, there are many things that we are undoubtedly doing uh, wrong in how we bring people through. But for relatively few people come fully into the workplace at 16 now. Actually, increasingly few come fully into the workplace at 18. So one of our big concerns is the gateway that Roger was talking about, because clearly we want to know who's operating on the level that is heading for the, the, the top of the shop, coming through elite universities. And we want that group to be as diverse and as open at the other end of the pipe as it possibly can be. So for us, exams really matter in terms of the pathways people get before they come to businesses, because we have no control or input over those real, uh, really. But the other, the other thing, and I think you, you put it quite succinctly, Charlotte, is there's quite a stale debate about, uh, words I'll put in inverted commas, uh, being ready for work. And I hate that phrase, and I always have, because it implies that business and, and employment is somehow separated from society. The skills you need to be a good employee are the skills you need to be a good citizen. Of course, we need people to be literate and numerate, and we do want accreditation and measurement of that. There's a big question about employers are relying on GCSE grade, maths grades for functional numeracy now. How effective that is as a measure is, is a long argument if we were to get into it. But that piece around, we need a baseline sense, but the rest of it actually is about how people will train on. And I think that's where, you know, if business makes the mistake of talking about people being ready for work, um, I think in the education system, there's a kind of category error in thinking that education ends when people come into work. We have to accept that people come in and train on. And so businesses now are looking at how we can develop people when they come. And we are looking for people who have that ability to grow and develop once they're with us. And that does absolutely come to the fact of, you know, the rare example, Roger, that you mentioned about how can we judge uh, a, a, a seven or a B or a two, two over here versus a, a nine or, or an A or a first over there. Um, and increasingly we're using group work, group exercises, we're using online assessment. I you know, run an off-call accredited uh, assessment organization for, for our industry and all our exams are done online and remotely invigilated at the moment. So there are, there are things happening in business that, you know, I, I, GCSEs for instance are of, a, are of a different order, but I think there's innovation there that we can reach for if we keep coming back to what is the pathway we want to give young people through the system? Because the most important thing is sustainability for young people. And I think that requires, and this is probably where I'm a little more um, pessimistic than I am optimistic. It requires us to stop playing uh, to the electors of Eastbourne on some elements of how we talk about education. Um, and I say this um, as someone who's always held this view, not just because I have children approaching GCSE in the next couple of years, but I know there's tons you can write about GCSE grade comparability year on year and, and how it's all getting softer and how the, uh, how, how the media will write that up. But there is a responsibility on us all to acknowledge the good work that schools do to acknowledge the difficulty of that work and to be boosters for 
our education system in putting children at the heart of it because ultimately the only thing business is looking for in all of this is a really broad pipeline of people who are in good hands as they come through the system so that they find themselves in our the beginning of our pipeline where we can then apply some of these new technologies to judge people on long-term potential not just what they've regurgitated in an exam hall over three hours so really interested in coming into the debate but i i think uh roger's essay is a uh, a contribution on the question of exam reform, but I think it's really important that we view it as a co contribution on the question of the reform of the UK government as well, as Anne's pointed out, especially at a moment like this, when we know um, that the shape of the state going forward will be fundamentally reshaped by Brexit and by the pandemic. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Neil. Um, well, we've covered a, a real range of issues as I, as, as I expected and hoped for. Um, everything from the apprenticeship levy, um, the, the role that GCSEs plays, through to then the kind of finer, more technical points around how the algorithm works or, or didn't. Um, at this stage, I actually, I actually want to bring in a few questions from the Q&A that, that deal with the algorithm specifically and the role of Ofqual before then I go into a bit more of a update. So I'm going to come back to Roger on, on these specifics. Um, so with thanks to people who've raised their questions in the chat function, I think there are, there are a couple of themes. So that the first one is, could the algorithm, even if you're saying that the results of last year's situation weren't necessarily the fault of the algorithm, but do you think Ofqual could, could have designed a more sophisticated algorithm and what more data do you think would have been um, would have enabled a more predictive um, uh, process one that could have been more and or one that could have been more you know human centric to use your phrase do you think do you think it would have been possible to design that in the time available yep um so sorry just uh... It's getting a bit noisy here. Um, so uh, I think I think that is missing the point. Yeah, you definitely more. You know, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's possible somebody might. You know, that somebody else might have come up with a better algorithm. It wouldn't, frankly, have made any difference to the legitimacy of the process while there was a cap on the. In, in, it's important to remember the actual accuracy of the algorithm. I mean, there's an interesting point that Ofqual pointed out, which is. And given that an exam grade is an imperfect estimate of, of some kind of notional true grade, and given the accuracy of the algorithm, it's quite likely that actually the algorithm was in some sense more accurate than exams. But that's irrelevant because it's the experience and how you interact with this thing. And so saying, well, it's more accurate wouldn't really fix that. Um, everyone who got a grade lower than they thought they should have got believed it to be true. And we can't tell which ones were right and which ones are wrong. So they're all equally legitimate in saying you have treated me unreasonably. Um, so I don't, I think more accuracy, however done, and it's difficult to do it without them getting into quite, um, uh, quite, you know, quite questionable practices of personal profiling. And so it's quite, it's quite hard to do it without becoming invasive. The album was designed effectively to adjust what a teacher's view of the students was, not to try and make a, a, an individual student prediction. Um, that's the first point to make. But the second point to make is, you know, a decision that said, well, we, we, do, we, are, we are going to allow a higher level of grade inflation, or we're going to allow a mechanism that will enable more people to progress to university. Um, 
uh, but still use an algorithm to even that out. I mean, that is what happened in Ireland. Uh, and it worked. I mean, if you look at Ireland and France, they both used teacher assessed grades that were moderated. France, it was moderated by humans. Ireland, it was moderated by an algorithm. They were both acceptable, but the common feature was that both had a significant degree of inflation and a, a significant increase in university places. And that seems to be, that is the aspect that made it acceptable. Um, it's also interesting to note in Ireland that this happened uh, due to a last minute U-turn. So they actually implemented an algorithm that was not, was <laughs> rather sort of, I mean, very questionable in terms of its distributional impact. Um, uh, but if if Ofqual had been set the task of designing an algorithm that where there was a, a you know a decision in advance, well, look, we simply can't just you know, given that we don't really know who should go to university, we obviously can't tell this many people that they've lost out. Uh, if we say, well, look, we're going to address that directly, and then you could build an algorithm that attempted to be fair in the distribution of grades and places on that basis, it wouldn't need to be more sophisticated. It would just be doing something that people would regard as fairer. Um, on that, so, I mean, I think one of the key points that you're making is that if policymakers had lifted the cap on university places, you would have taken a chunk, at least, of the, of the unfairness out because more students could have gone on to university, you know, regardless of the grades that they were ultimately awarded through that algorithm. I guess the flip side to the conversation that, that we've also had is, well, what about those people who are then stuck effectively with grades that doesn't that, that wouldn't get them to university, but aren't going to ne necessarily get them into a viable, high quality further education and employment route? So th this is a very interesting question. And I, and I think there's a really important point to make here, which is uh, and, and particularly, I think some of Anne's comments sort of raise this issue. It's really important to understand that a a, a, a system of assessment. I mean, the, the, firstly, say I, I I don't think it's really fair to say things like critical thinking or problem solving aren't academic skills. I mean, those are exactly the skills you do learn if you do a geography A level or a you know a mass a mass GCSE. Um, there is a, uh, a it, it, there's sometimes a temptation to say that because there are attainment gaps, because people from disadvantaged backgrounds do less well on these qualifications, that they are somehow unfair. And I think the issue here is, I think we get into ourselves into very deep trouble if we start to think that the what we're looking for is an assessment system that disguises what are real differences in educational attainment. So we need to have a, a system that's kind of tells you the truth about how well a kid can do on an exam paper, but we also then need to overlay on that recruitment mechanisms and university admissions mechanisms that understand the context in which it was that grade was achieved and where decisions are made that recognize these differences and, and make fair decisions. I, I personally feel if we, if we go down the road of saying we're going to try and have assessments that take into account your learning experience or your disadvantage, we it will become we will get ourselves into a, into a right pickle. Well, I mean, if we think about Neil's point on um, GCSEs being a school accountability measure, I mean, we have tried and played around with contextual value added measures previously, and we know about progress aid and the rest. So we do try and do that to an extent. That's in the accountability mechanism. It, it, whereas obviously the more consequential thing for the student is the, is the, is, is the recruitment mechanism. But sorry, I also didn't quite answer your question, which I thought both Anne and Neil were really strong on, which is this point about, look, although although university admission tends to be the point at which people, you know, particularly in terms of, of, of sensitivity and public outrage at what happened uh, last year, um, the, the broader notion of, well, how well is this system working for people who, uh, who, who, who the other 50 percent, as you put it, I think is, is an actually crucial question. And it's got a number of elements to it, one of which is what is available to them. Um, 
another key issue for me is the difficulty of navigating that terrain. And while I think, for example, the introduction of T levels is, is hugely welcome, it is nonetheless a large qualification that is the size of three A levels and is not going to work for a very large number of people in that 50%. So we, we, we do need to think quite hard about the way that, and I thought Joe Johnson's comments this week about the growth of micro-credentials and do we have an education system that is thinking about uh, supporting students through those mechanisms? Uh, are we thinking about how this links into lifelong learning and recognizing that you know it, this it, it, this can't be a one-shot chance? You get to 18, you had your chance, and now your life's fixed. I think those considerations uh, and and it, that those are areas where technology has a huge amount to offer in making pathways navigable and fairer. Thanks, Roger. Well, as a quick CPP plug, we're actually publishing a paper um, that looks at the educational attainment gaps and starts to think about how we can fill them, and, and micro-credentialing could be could be one of those ways. Um, I'm going to turn to get some thoughts from Anne and Neil um, just on, on what you said in response to those before then I go to Michelle Zahar and Nick Timmins to come in um, to ask their questions live on the AV. So Anne first. Any reflections on, on Roger? Yes, of course. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, I think for me, so much of it ultimately <laughs> comes back to how much do you want to do this um, and what do you want to do most? Because you know, uh, in, in, in any kind of system, and especially within, obviously, within the political dimension, it's what actually is your burning desire to, to, to really achieve that gets the priority. And Neil's point about, you know, the system as a whole actually needing to work together. So uh, your, your point, uh, Roger, really well made, you know, this is about measurement of actually what the position is. It's not, whilst you've got other aspects of it, you know, you, you can't, you've not got a magic wand, you can't put the world to right at that point. But actually, it can, I would argue two things. One, last year, there was a specific context where a lot of children hadn't had the same experience and access to learning that others had. And we knew there were some characteristics of those children. I mean, you know, the digital aspect, but also the geographical aspect. There could have been the opportunity there to do some one-off or, you know, by one-off, it might be, you know, within this kind of three-year period or whatever, where we could have added some uh, additional um, uh, aspects there, which could have uh, modified that, given it was such a stark difference between some children in terms of their access. Um, but the other thing is, um, you know, yes, of course, that aspect where you, you are measuring uh, reality there, but that then has to be connected to someone else think, saying, well, what does that mean? How do you change that? What comes next? What should come before? And I think the one thing that always kind of strikes me is, and it's a question really, I'd really love to get your viewer. What do you think, the where do you think that responsibility lies once you know something? Do you think it's someone else's responsibility to get kids to, you know, to, to, to fill that pipeline or you just measure at that point? Or do you think that somehow, you know, off call within that, knowing what they do has a responsibility to start that conversation or further that conversation or drive it? Because as, bits of a system living in, in boxes, it's always someone else's job to actually make, make them up. And my view of the world is that it's everyone within that's job to do it because you can all see part of it. And Roger, if I might say, we've had, we had a similar question in the chat, which was basically, could, should, should have Ofqual pushed back harder? If 
Yeah. yeah. So, exactly. so I, I, my view on this is a really interesting question. My view on this is that regulatory organisations, you've got to play the function you are supposed to play in the whole machine, as it were. You can't start taking on, if everybody tries to fix everything, the world falls apart. However, that doesn't take away everybody's responsibility for the, the broader system operating. And it became, it became during the, 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 the recent years when I was the chair, it did become a real issue for us thinking about, because qualifications have historically been seen as, as a tool of meritocracy, a, you know, a mechanism of fairness, a level playing field on which people can mm. and progress. And it, it's starting to lose that and it's starting to feel like the opposite. And that is, to my mind, catastrophic because if, if, if we end up with a world of sort of, you know, um, untransparent recruitment mechanisms that people don't fully understand, it will be soul destroying to just be constantly have computers say no to you and you, you, you know, you, and probably some professional <laughs> recruitment systems can sometimes feel a little bit like that. So we do need to think really carefully about how people retain confidence that getting a qualification is going to develop a skill and they will be judged fairly and that their life will be able to progress. So I think that is everybody's responsibility. And if, if it doesn't get fixed, you know, qualifications will be the losers and so will citizens. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good steer, Roger. And I, I, thinking about what, what our members at the REC do and... Um, and the future for us that you know, a lot of the narrative that we share with people is about you know it comes back to uh, the idea that this is a human process not a fundamentally technological process so the technology needs to enable the people to do the things that the people need to do um, and and that is you know that is a battle there are plenty of uh, firms who uh, manage their recruitment through their procure procurement processes and they're what they're looking for is lowest cost now I can I can argue there's 7.7 .7 billion pounds of productivity for the UK available if you if you go for the for the value approach and broaden those nets out and do things more effectively um, but that's a battle we need to win on the employer side I think it's the same within government thinking about the exam system so you know we talk about the self-improving school system um, and lots of the kind of ideological thinking that stands behind the academies program. I, I think there's an element of that to this as well, which is how do we make sure that whatever we do is properly uh, not producer interested, because I do think DFE has a habit, particularly on the skills side, to be focused on producers rather than on uh, 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 the ultimate users of the system, who are the, the pupils and the students. Um, but how we uh, make sure we're effectively garnering and shaping that input so that when we do bring things forward, whether, you know, something more AI dri driven in the credential system is five years away or eight years away, when we do think it forward, the first thing people think is this solves the problem that I see for the young people I'm working with. The other thing, just to, to add, just to go to your final point, Roger, about micro-credentials, um, people are really excited about micro-credentialing in the private sector now. Uh, it gives them a massive opportunity to do effective right-to-work checking and to, uh, and, and to <coughs> speed the process of things like checking people's professional status. It's so important that we've got six breakouts at our conference at the REC next week. One of them is on that. Um, and I think that piece <coughs> around how can we bring blockchain-enabled micro-credentialing into particularly the upper tiers of the exam system um, is, is a really good live question for us to get our teeth into over the next couple of years. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Oh, 
Can I just throw one one extra yeah. in? Which is um, it, it's something that you said earlier. Where really, um, how do we um, rebalance what is scrutinised in huge depth and what we um, hold as important from from having that priority on university and the fifty percent to not only the other fifty percent but that. 20% of kids who actually will probably just fade away at that point. Um, and on all the points that I've, I've kind of raised, how do we move that? So we're as bothered, if not more bothered, about that group of children they were, than we are the, the ones that go to um, Russell Group. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. And particularly because I want to bring in um, uh, Michelle and another question from the Q&A, which is getting at particular groups of children that might have been potentially more let down. So we've talked about the regional and, and, and uh, nature of, um, uh, and, and the idea of disadvantaged versus non-disadvantaged households. But there was a question in the Q&A around SEND children, particularly those who are autistic. And Michelle, do you want to ask your questions? I think that's about homeschooling. Oh, right, yeah. Well, not homeschooling, home education. It's not homeschooling. Oh, sorry, okay. they've got homeschooling on the brain after the pandemic. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so within home education communities, they felt very let down substantially by the exam cancellations. It's left many without college and university placements. It's also left for the future less centres available for home educators and private candidates, as it is now viewed as even more difficult in case of future exams are cancelled. How are these groups being factored into future grading systems? So, Roger, I think this is one for you. Yeah, so um, I, I'm not too sure. The question. I mean, just one thing to say, I do think because there's, there's one of the issues around sort of the notion of algorithmic bias, I think was often misunderstood. And it's so, for example, you know, send lots of groups that were thought to be being disadvantaged, like send actually did, were relatively speaking advantaged by the process of moderation. Um, on, on your point about home homeschooled kids and, and in 2020, which obviously was a, a huge issue, um, I I mean, I, you know, I, you, you've we, missed the point. You've missed the point. Sorry. It's home educated children. So they yes. haven't got the support of a school in the background. They are yep. purely home educated. So they may not have tutors. They, they may literally be learning with the support of their own parents. So they, so all the things that were supposedly safeguards, normally the children wouldn't do mocks. They would literally just sit the exam. Yep. And that's always been fine before. But then, like this year, uh, a lot of centres took the students on when the rules changed they actually just told the parents no we're not registering your children now they were now too late so they had to then either they gave up so they didn't, haven't been able to do anything or they had to go to a different center now on a late fee and normally more of an expensive center so it, it uh, ends up being disadvantaging even further Fine. Look, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't think I can comment on this. I, I've not been involved uh, since last December in, in the arrangement, so I don't, I don't really know enough about those arrangements. I, I, what you're saying, I, I understand the point you're making, but I don't think I could usefully comment on it. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Roger. So going to Nick now. Nick Timmins. Uh, hi. Hi, I'm Nick Timmins. I'm, like Roger, I'm a former Financial Times journalist. And these days I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, among other things. I guess it's a question chiefly for Roger, but given we sort of swung from one extreme to the other, from almost total reliance on an algorithm to an incredibly heavy reliance on teacher assessment, is this going to go better this year or are we heading for another slightly different debacle? The, um, I mean, there's definitely a thing that goes on, and this is why playing an algorithm is not 
helpful because it's a bit like, you know, now everybody thinks an algorithm's like the, the lift you got stuck in recently and no one wants to go near them. So there's a kind of a bit of a psychological effect there, which hopefully will wash out, but it isn't, it isn't useful that, that uh, people are fearful of algorithms. Um, the, uh, in terms of this year, um, I think, uh, I think, you know, teachers know what they've got to do. It's, it's not an easy task. They do have set work on which they're going to base their grades. And I'm, you know, I'm confident they will, you know, d do it as, as well as humanly possible. Um, I think it's probably all I'd say about it at this stage. Again, I'm not involved in, in this year's um, arrangements, so I don't want to comment further. That's good. Thanks. And we've just got one um, one last question that I think is really um, appropriate to end on. So it's actually um, aimed at Anne. Um, and Zoe asks, what impact um, the um, exam situation had last year? What do you think that will have on um, not just young people who are directly affected, but those in younger years who've kind of watched that unfold? And I guess that's a way of bringing um, the conversation to a close because then I'll come to Neil first and then Roger to, to wrap up from a perspective of children and young people and, and how we take that forward but Anne first please. Well I think like so much so many other aspects of the pandemic was a huge shock you know we all think how life is going to go school's going to stay open you're going to go to school um, you're going to do exams because that's what everyone does and then you know something will happen you may go um, to uh, university, you might do other things. And of course, the pandemic has, has, has been a huge shock in, in all those terms. And if they've got older siblings, they will have seen what would have happened in terms of um, the way the system uh, had to change at huge speed. Um, I think that, as with so many things, um, means that children, um, part of that recovery that they now need is to really be helped to see, you know, the path forward. The next few years aren't going to be back to normal in any way in, 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 in terms of this, but also then to really have that clarity about what, um, you know, what the future will look like, what will exams look like, what will be they expected uh, to see? Because, of course, what we don't want is for kids to just lose faith in it completely and think that exams are, you know, not going to happen at all. Um, and, and that actually they, 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 there's no point in them progressing at this stage. Not that any children would, but, you know, it, it's easy to see why. Um, so I think that clarity and that real understanding of the extent of the shock of the pandemic of the last year. And of course, I would say as part of that needs to support that recovery in the broadest sense within education. Yeah. Thanks, Charlotte. I, I think Anne's point's very well made. And I'm going to briefly, uh, well, I was going to say briefly take off my business hat and put on my uh, my sort of uh, school governance multi-academy trust hat. But actually, the, the, the hats tell me to say the same thing, which is um, what we need to do is appreciate what has what the path has been that different children have walked over the last uh year and a half and if you think about the difference between even children of similar ability coming from similar income backgrounds if you have a household where one parent works in construction and has been going to work throughout the pandemic and one parent is uh, either working at home or having to be furloughed to support uh, ed education that's a very different world to where both parents are working at home or one only one parent is working and working at home the support net networks for our young people 
um, very, very widely. And I think our understanding of the very different start starting positions young people have, you know, talking to one of the schools in our trust last week, you know, bringing vulnerable children into school in the last lockdown has changed the perspective because of course they've had probably more one-to-one -one time than they would have otherwise uh, otherwise ha had but if you look at some of the middle ability children who have got less support at home they're in a much more concerning position so i think everything that we've we've learned from roger's essay comes back to this question of who's it for and ultimately it is a collective effort and we have to think about the collective, but it's about helping the maximum number of individual young people to where we need, we need and they want to be. And I think empowering schools with the tools to do that is really, really important. So I don't often allow myself a personal comment on one of these, but it would be nice uh, at being involved with several primary schools for me not to have to take money out of our budget every single year. Well, on, on that, um, yeah, slightly fiscally dismal note, um, I might just le le uh, hand it back to Roger for any final closing comments on the, on the conversation and, and your reflections as you've laid out. Well, firstly, just to say, and, and uh, you know, reflecting on Neil's last comment there, one thing that has resulted from the pandemic and any child that's been, you know, going through the last two years or any parent that's having to be deal with homeschooling is a huge public appreciation of what teachers do and the value of education, which may have an influence on, on your last point. And also, interestingly, an, an appreciation of exams. So the Ofqual survey, annual survey, shows, you know, people are at much greater support for, you know, uptick in exams because they've experienced what, what happens when they're not around. Um, the, but but I'm, I'm, I'm with, I'm absolutely, you know, it, it, I do think, as, as Neil was saying earlier, I do think there's also, this is, is has the potential to be a huge wake-up call for government and for education to start thinking much more constructively. I mean, just to be clear, I don't think there's any illegitimacy about government thinking about how qualifications can be used as a tool to drive high quality education. It's not that that is wrong. Yep. It's just that if that becomes the sole purpose, it starts to, it becomes soul destroying for the people involved. It needs to be thought about as how does this help young people? How does it incentivize them to progress? How does it, it help them achieve their goals? And have we built a system that is really designed to do that? And I think if we look at it from that question, we all realize there is huge opportunities, huge opportunities for this country to think about how we could do that better. Thank you, Roger. And my wake up call to government would be, if you don't get that education is must be core to levelling up so that that's more than just a political slogan that lasts from now until the next election, then you've misunderstood, you know, what it is that we're all aspiring to achieve. So today, with the publication of Roger's essay, the work that's going out um, under um, the name of our uh, lead researcher, Dean Hoffler, on, on this programme, and um, and further work to come down the line. Um, CPP is really committed to making sure we reinforce that messaging about the relationship between early years, education, further education, and the opportunities that creates for inclusive growth. So thank you so much to everyone for, for joining us. Thank you again to Anne Longfield, Neil Carberry, and Roger Taylor, of course. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.